Our scripture this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 2. On the back of your bulletin you'll find these words. Ye have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward and command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir. And they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a foot breadth, because I have given Mount Sir unto Esau for a possession. Ye shall buy meat of them for money, that ye may eat, and ye shall also buy water of them for money, that ye may drink. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all thy works of the land. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness these forty years. The Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou shalt that house lacked nothing. Rise ye up, take your journey, and pass over the river, Aaron. Behold, I have given unto thine hand Sihon and the Amorite, king of the Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. This day will I begin to put dread of thee and fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land before thee. Begin to possess that thou mayest inherit this land. The text that we just read was um, God's challenge to his people to just go in and take the land. He wanted them to go home. The land that he had promised to Abraham so long ago, go in. I've opened the path. Go in. It's yours. Why is there an echo? Does one need to be turned off? Now it's better, isn't it? Okay. All right. Um, in the sermon today, I want to answer some really serious questions, or at least discuss some serious questions that trouble us as well as trouble the children of Israel and relate to us as well as they did them. And in the sermon, we're going to talk about the great promises that God made to his people. We will examine several to see what happened to them, the promises. And instead of being a blessing, we find out that they turned out a horrible curse. Why? What went wrong? Was it God's will? Was that the precursor? Was that what was, it was all about? What was the problem? What does this say to Adventists today? Because it's a strong message. Will the promises ever come true? Will they ever come true and when? Well, let's take a look at the promises. And as I said earlier, I don't want you to try to take your time to jot down references and stuff. If you want any of that stuff, just go to the website and you can get it there. And I think they also post the audio there too as well. There's Abraham. At 75, he was promised that he would become a, now look at what the promise was, great nation, a great name, and a blessing to all. And he was renamed Abraham, father of a multitude, because of the promised blessing. 
He would multiply exceedingly, the Bible said, and Sarah was renamed Sarah, Sarai was renamed Sarah, princess, and the promise was confirmed again in Genesis, and 100 years of age, Isaac was finally born. Right away you see a problem, don't you? 25 years went by. The promises go on. He would be given the land from the Nile to the Euphrates for how long? Ishmael's descendants were promised, great promises were given to them too. Twelve sons, just like the twelve sons of Jacob. You know, interesting how that worked out, isn't it? Twelve and twelve. And his descendants, that is um, Israel's uh, descendants, would be as the dust of the earth, the stars of the sky. I want you to note what the promises were, so you can be aware of that. God pledged himself to Abraham as his surety that God would always be his champion. Okay? Do you like the promises? Okay? As children of Abraham, do any of those flow down to us? They do? Okay. He died at 175. He first heard the promise at 75, and now at 175, 100 years of living under the promise, is the father of Isaac, the lineage of the Jews, and Ishmael, the lineage of where? The Arabs. This gets contemporary now. The promise of being a great nation, that was the first one that was mentioned. They would be a great nation. Israel, through Jacob, rarely approached that fulfillment of that promise. They went to Egypt in exile. Abraham went down to Egypt during a famine in Palestine. But he didn't go without first receiving God's promise, allowing him to go. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be exiled in the strange land for how long? 400 years after God had promised him the land of Canaan. He would be in Egypt for 400 years. I think it's really important that we pay attention to what's going on here simply because this is no stranger to us. Sometimes we have a hard time dealing with the fact of promises that don't immediately come true or that get perverted or switched somehow. And we need to understand this goes way back to Abraham's day as well. Okay, Four generations would grow up in Egypt. God had given them Canaan, but four generations grew up in Egypt. Due to an extended famine in Palestine, through an amazing series of events, God gave Jacob permission to go to Egypt, assuring him that he would still be a great nation. And towards the end of the 18th century B.C., an intrusion of foreigners known as the Hyksos took over Egypt, becoming the 15th and 16th dynasties. They imported, for instance, horses and chariots, a superior military apparatus, and they were hated by all the Egyptians. That's when things turned bad. They went down in Goshen. It was wonderful. Favorite of the Pharaoh. When these people came in, foreigners, everything went bad for the Jews for a lot of time. If you were the Jews, how often would you have been told about those promises given to Abraham during this time? You'd be very much aware of them, right? And then you would be living through years and years of years of the most brutality and the most 
heartbreaking times that you could ever imagine. The promises of being a great nation. Well, how many years did they really rule their own land? Well, for Sinai, if you want to call the wilderness, they were in charge pretty much during those 40 years through Moses. In the period of the Joshua and the Judges, which were not fabulous times in history, they were ruling during that time. The conquest of Palestine took six to seven years, yielding, uh, I don't know what, something's missing there, isn't it? And it didn't give them very much uh, land, uh, but eventually during David and Solomon's time it grew. Uh, 1000 BC to 586 BC, the Assyrians came in and deported the northern tribes. The ten northern tribes were brutally slaughtered. Uh, and if you know anything about the Assyrians, they worshipped a war god. And the war god, as part of the act of worship, they actually had to bring the skulls of their killed... What's that? So, oh, so the actually when the king came to bring an act of worship almost, they brought the skulls of their killed, slain enemies and made pyramids out to them in front of him. Can you imagine that? If you were among those ten northern tribes, ten of the twelve descendants, what about those promises? What would they go? What it, what would it mean to you going through your mind? about those promises while you were watching that take place. How many of their kinsmen were slain by the Assyrians? Well, the ones that weren't slain were deported. And they were deported so thoroughly that they had been called the Lost Tribes. And only little snippets here in history, here and there, do you have evidence of any clue of where they might have been disappeared to. We're talking about ten of the nations that followed Abraham in his lineage. Lost, totally lost. God said, out of you will become a great nation. Obliteration of ten of the twelve. Totally. And then the Babylonians came. And the Babylonians deported them, the two southern tribes, deported them to Babylon and Jerusalem after continued resistance against even the prophet's advice. They resisted. And uh, finally, Jerusalem was, was in wreck, and it's, all of its people were turned into slaves or deported. So now you've got the entire ten, 12 tribes. Does it sound good yet? They were a vassal country, which means they were ruled by other people from 586 B.C. to 70 A.D. Now, we have come... From the time of Abraham, about 2000 B.C., down to the time of the monarchy, about 1000 B.C., and now we're at the time of Christ. We don't find that during any of that time, except for maybe a brief little stint during David's time and Solomon's time, do we see a little of this great nation coming about and how quickly wiped away. They were subject nations to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, as you see in the prophetic chart there. In AD 70, Rome, because of the Jews and the zealot Jews who were determined, mind you, 
to lay claim to the promises that were there through Abraham, determined to have that land obstinately against the Romans, the Romans came down and just crushed them. Just crushed them. You remember about Masada? On top of that mountain, they chose to die rather than you, all the Jews. Almost two and a half million Jews were slaughtered during this period. Two and a half million are starved to death or sold into slavery. Finally, in 135, a second rebellion called the Barcoba Rebellion made Jerusalem off limits forever to the Jews. You put this little sad fact of history next to the grand story of the promises to Abraham and you ask questions. Can't help but wonder. They were allowed to return only once a year at the anniversary of what? The temple's destruction pushed their face into it. Various attempts were made to rebuild the city in the 7th century, 4,500 Christians were offered the choice of renouncing their faith or die. So there was this reaction against uh, the Christians. And around 700 A.D., the Dome of the Rock, that mosque, was built on the very temple grounds. Now, you see how offensive that would have been? And if you were to go to Jerusalem today, the only thing left of that temple is the foundation, that wailing wall. It's all that's left. And you see these Jews, they would come and they just, they kind of do this, this kind of a thing and they, ought, they stick their prayers in the crevices between the rocks. And they're praying for the same thing that were promised to Abraham all those years ago. Now it's not 2,000 years, it's 4,000 years that have gone by. Now, during the Crusades, 1099 to 1291, Christian kings attempted to free Jerusalem from barbarian control by killing both Jews and Muslims. And the period that followed left a million to two million Jews dead and a spirit of intolerance that spread throughout the land. Jews were forced to wear badges or they fled to Poland, Netherlands, South America. What I'm telling you now is something that all of us, I think, knew about already. We find out that what was taking place here is the Jews now are no longer just the enemies of the Romans. They are the enemies of the world. And some of us from history know about that. In the 16th century, they were isolated in ghettos in Italy, Germany, and Central Europe. In Poland, Russia, in the 18th and 19th centuries, they were drafted into the military when they were 12 years of age and had to serve for 25 years in a country that was not theirs and a country who hated them. Now, if you were a Jew and your history is now filled with thousands of years of things like this, would you have a hard time reading Genesis and the promises to Abraham? It would be tough, wouldn't it? During the ten, one ten-year period, the czars killed over 100,000 Jews. Jewish women were forced to wear prostitute badges. Now that, what do you think that set them up for? 
Many fled to the United States and to Britain, and during World War II, the most horrible travesty of all time, for the Jews, six million of them were killed throughout Europe. Now, this is one of the grandest prophecies in the Bible that was given to Abraham, and one that we treasure and we love deeply, but when you match it up with what happened, and it's not just one isolated event. It is something that goes all down through history. And it is so intense and so overwhelming, as we will soon see. The second promise, that he would have descendants, and he couldn't count the descendants. You just couldn't count how many there would be. Well, I'm sure that meant a lot to Abraham. How often did that get realized? Out of the original 70 persons, who had, they had grown to 600,000 adult men when they finally came out of Egypt. Now, they were slaves, but there were 600,000 men, and if you do the math, it's probably over 2 million people when you count the children and the wives and all of that. Probably 2 million people that left with Moses to go out into the desert. Can you imagine 2 million people at campground? Camp meeting? Boy, would the bathrooms be really crowded. And where would they get the water? And where would they get the food? Where did they get the water? And where did they get the food? And where did they get the safety? And where did... Just over and over. Currently, their world population is 13.4 million. God said, like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, Count them all up around the world, 2% of the world's population. Israel is the only nation where the Jews are in the majority. 42.5% live in Israel, 39% live in the United States, and the rest live around Canada and Europe, places like that, where they can have freedom and not be afraid of their lives. Now, that's the descendants through Jacob, <laughs> through Israel. But there were the descendants that came through Ishmael that God had said as well that they would be a great nation. And listen to what happened to his 12 sons. They settled between Assyria and Egypt, and they, how many percent of the world are the Jews? Two the descendants of Ishmael's 26% of the world population. That just needs to sink in a little bit. It's, it caught me by surprise. Count all the Jews around the globe, 2% of the world's population. Count all the Arabs around the world, and it's 26%. One came through Jacob, the children of promise, only 2%. The other that went through Ishmael, 26% around the world. 2.2 billion Arabs expected by the year 2030. So there's the map of Israel. And um, here you can see the spots where the Arabs are at. <laughs> and it's about 50-50 as far as population. The only prop property in Palestine that Abraham owned was his, the cave of Machpelah which he bought for 400 shekels of silver, which was the burial ground for the family. 
The population in Israel today is 5.3 million Jews, 5.1 million Arabs. Now, this was land promised to whom? Abraham. Through Jacob to that line. They have to share that with Ishmael's family. Ishmael was to have other land. The promise of a great name and a blessing to all. You think I've told some sad stories so far. Watch this one. Three great religions sprang forth from Abraham. Christians, which are now 31% of the world's population. Jews, 2%. And Muslims, 30%. That came from Abraham. Abraham was a highly regarded man in his day. He modeled a religion that was based upon faith. A personal, intimate connection with God. New face to face. That's the role that Christians are supposed to model in the world today. Okay? To be a blessing to all. You see the title of this one? Can you read that up there? Yeah. I guess it's clear, isn't it? All right. All right. Jews have been the most loathed of all people, probably, on the face of the globe. Hated by society because they were Jews. Because they thought they were wealthy and they had money hidden somewhere. And they were using that money in a way that people weren't happy about. That they were greedy, that they were manipulated, that they were financiers. By the way, do you know how long ago that financier habit started? The Maroshi, I think is that, that was their name, brothers in Babylon, while they were slaves to Nebuchadnezzar, started the banking industry of the Jewish people while they were slaves. They were scurrilous, desiring control. These were the reputations that the Jews and were stated, publicly stated about the Jews down through the years, corrupting, supplanting other cultures while remaining aloof from people. They were despised by all men, forced to live in ghettos, excluded as aliens and limited to certain uh, professions, genetically flawed beyond redemption. People talk this way, acted toward the Jews this way. Philo of Alexandria described an attack on Jews in which thousands died, the violence triggered perhaps by their separateness. Stubbornness of the Jews exasperated the Romans, resulting in putting the temple to flames and their annihilation on Masada. Peaceful, tolerant coexistence was frequently harshly interrupted by forced conversions, expulsions, and massacres of the Jews. They had the first crusade uh, along the Rhine and Danube. The second crusade, Jews in Germany suffered severe uh, massacres. In 1290, they were expelled out of England. French, they were ex out of France, they were uh, expelled, and they fled to Poland. Here is that star of David that they had to wear. Jews were used as scapegoats when the Black Death devastated Europe. In the 14th century, rumors suggested they poisoned wells. Although Pope Clement tried to protect them, 900 Jews were burned alive in Strasbourg. During the colonial era, the, gov the American government limited the political and economic rights of Jews. It was not until the Revolutionary War that Jews had legal rights, including the right to vote. That's a long time to wait. What had God said about them? They were supposed to be in favor of people. Yeah. 
blessing. Blessing people. In the 19th century, the position of the Jews worsened in Muslim uh, countries. Muslims' children would throw stones and spit at them and to retaliate or would uh, was worse to death if they tried to retaliate. In Europe, they were characterized as villains, and, and here we get to Hitler's time. We all know about that. 1931, the Kristallnacht, where the Jews were killed and their property destroyed and their synagogues burned. Uh, you can see what happened there. They were gathered together in ghettos, and then what happened? Put in trains and shipped to be killed. Six million. Between 1900 and 1924, 1.75 Jews immigrated to America, more than tripling their numbers in America. But in America, they were faced with discrimination and they, uh, where they could live, what they could belong to. Uh, well, only a certain amount would be allowed to be in teaching positions. They were re, uh, the Ku Klux Klan renewed their vitality because of the Jews. Henry Ford, in his newspaper, promoted anti-Semitic ideas. Father Coughlin, through radio speeches, very popular radio speaker, accused the Jews of fostering a financial conspiracy by convincing President Roosevelt to switch away from the gold standard, leaving everyone else with worthless paper. In 2009, a study showed that nearly 25% of non-Jewish Americans blamed Jews for the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. Now, these are the descendants of whom? Abraham, Jacob. They're the descendants. And God had made amazing promises to them. And I just told you the story of what happened. What went so horribly wrong? Well, their numbers have been decimated. During the Roman Empire, Jews accounted for about 10% of the population of the world. Without widespread revulsion against the Jews, it could have numbered today to be the same as the descendants of Ishmael. Two billion people instead of just 13 million. How come the Jews became so hated? Well, look at Jesus. Did Jesus hate the Jews? Did they seem to hate him? Did he rebuke them? Did he rebuke them sharply? Very pointedly? Made them feel really bad, if they could feel bad. Called them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whited sepulchers, serpents, straining at gnats while swallowing camels, cleaning the outside while the inside was full of extortion and excess. Upon you may come all the righteous blood upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent to thee. And then he says what? Yeah, under my uh, wing. But you would not. Your house is left to you desolate. The Apostle Paul was partly Jew. And he was also conflicted about them. By the way, his father was a Pharisee. You know that, don't you? Although he was hounded and persecuted by them, and those are the actual texts in the book of Acts about how they were constantly hounding him and constantly causing trouble, causing him to be beaten up within an inch of his life. The Jews did this against Paul. Yet his love for his Jewish kinsmen was without limit. How, what he would give for them, he would give his life. 
for them. He came to believe that the Jews and Gentiles were equal before God and that only true Jew is one inwardly whose heart has been changed by the Spirit. So, it was not God's plan that they be in, in uh, Egypt all of those hard years. He called Moses by that burning bush, had him go down and talk to Pharaoh and ask for God's people to be let go. And in the resistance, he was willing to send these plagues upon the Egyptian people just to convince Pharaoh to let them go. And with a powerful hand, he rescued them in some of the most mighty miracles that we've ever seen, opened up the, the Red Sea and allowed them to pass through on dry ground. And a month later, he started a feeding program that lasted for 40 years, giving them all the food that they needed and perfect. They didn't get sick. They were well taken care of. And he also provided three days later water right from a rock. Consider feeding two million people in a wilderness where there's no water. You know, and where are you going to get food? No food. God provided for them all the time. And he wanted to take them directly home. This is where about the promises. He wants to go right home. And he took them into that land and they sent their spies in and they brought back wonderful treasures to show them how great the land was. But they also brought back a report that in that land there was what? Giants. If they have God who is taking care of them, why are they worried about giants? You know, why would they be doing that? Well, instead of going in, they sent spies in to investigate, and 10 of the spies came back, 10 of the 12 came back and said, there's giants, we can't possibly conquer that land. And so they walked, spent 40 years in the desert. Have you ever been to that desert? I've been to that desert. That is the most God-forsaken land you've seen anywhere. It's time to go home, God said in our text today. You've wandered here in the desert for 40 years. It's time to go home. I'm going to give you the promised land. And you heard that read this morning by, by Dean. Get along with your neighbors. I have given it all to you. Take it. It's practically yours. You have nothing to do. I've opened the path. But do you remember who he was talking to? He was talking to people who were so afraid of him that they wouldn't even want to get anywhere near him. They were hiding and cowering at the foot of the mountain, saying to Moses, you talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. He's too dangerous. We don't want to talk to God. And so they built a God that they could talk to, a God of metal. And when they got tired of all the food that God had provided, you know, only in their desperate need did they go to God. He was never their friend. Wasn't their friend. And they despised his laws. In fact, they only kept the laws just superficially. And so they had spent 40 years, 50 different encampments, 200 or 2 million plus people. Paul tells us why this happened. He says to the Jews in the book of Hebrews, My dear Christian friends, take a good hard look at Jesus. He is a centerpiece of everything we believe. Don't turn a deaf ear as in the bitter uprising, that time of wilderness testing. Even though they watched me at work for 40 years, your ancestors refused to let me do it my way. Are you learning about the Jews here? Over and over they tried my patience. I was provoked, oh so provoked, 
I said, they will never keep their minds on God. They refuse to walk down my road. Exasperated, I vowed they'll never get where they're going, never be able to sit down and rest. Did that come true? 4,000 years came true. So watch your step, friends. Make sure there's no evil unbelief, Paul says to the Jews, lying around that will trip you up and throw you off course, diverting you from the living God first, as long as it's still God's. Today, keep each other on your toes so sin doesn't slow down your reflexes. If we can only keep our grip on the sure thing we started out with, we're in this with Christ for the long haul. These words keep ringing in our ears today. Please listen. Don't turn a what? A deaf ear as in the bitter uprising. For who were the people who turned a deaf ear? Were they the very ones Moses led out of Egypt and who God provoked with 40 years? Wasn't it those who turned a deaf ear ended up corpses in the wilderness? And when he swore that they'd never get to where they were going, wasn't he talking to the ones who turned a deaf ear? What is the problem? God makes the promises. He's fully capable of fulfilling the promises, but he can't stop a deaf ear. A deaf ear. And that was the problem. They never listened. They never believed. Hebrews chapter 3. The problem was not hearing. Here is the text right here. Hebrews, excuse me, Romans 10, 17. Faith, which is the basis of every relationship. It is the thing that allows us to hear each other's hearts. It's the thing that allows us to become one. Instead of running away from God and cowering from him and seeing him as an enemy, it's seeing him as a friend and being together. That's faith that makes that possible. Faith cometh by what? They wouldn't hear. What is hearing? Jesus spoke to them and they couldn't hear him because their minds were already closed to him. And so his words could not get in. That kept them out. Will it keep us out? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing, I said this before several times in the past. I want you to make sure you never forget this. In the Greek, hearing and obeying, there's just one word for both. If you hear, you will obey. It's not an if. It's a, if it gets in, you will obey. And if God's word does get in, it is powerful. It can change. But we've got to allow it to come in, and that is the ability to hear. Hearing gives birth to faith, which is, builds that relationship I was talking about. Faith allows you, uh, whatever it to get in to get beyond our, our defenses. Our defenses go down, and that's what the Jews couldn't do. They closed their walls up. Not hearing and disobeying are also one word in the Greek, parakouo. So, you got it? If you hear, you will obey. If you don't hear, you will disobey. Even the Greek had that understanding in just their language. So, it's like a child. Why do we talk to them when they're not listening? Why does the wife talk to the, try to get through to the husband, convince him of something, when he's just not listening? Right? 
That's silly. Wait until they will hear. How are they going to hear? Well, some of them were broken down by the hardships of life and are willing to open their minds and stop and say, this isn't working very well. And that's why God led him in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's some of the reason behind all this horrible stuff. Why did you not understand my speech, Jesus said? Because you cannot hear my word. You and your father, you are of your father, your devil, the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. But he speaketh a lie when he speaketh. He speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Well, they had their hearts closed. They couldn't hear the words of life. Now, this is what Isaiah says to this. He says, if you really want to hear, you've got to incline your ear. <laughs> you've really got to stretch in that direction. That's what he's talking about. You've got to strain to hear. You've got to try to hear. And when you try to hear, then God can get through to you. You, have to, you, you know what I'm talking about. You really got to. It's like my daughter-in-law. She's going to have to practice this. All the evidence is crazy right now, but is she going to be able to strain to hear what God is trying to tell her right now about how to solve their problems? Strain, hear, that your soul might live. Now, I'm switching now to something more contemporary, talking to us Adventists. The, re the reference there is the book of Evangelism, 696. You ought to read that section. It was not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. God did not design that his people, the Israel, should wander 40 years in the wilderness. He promised to lead them directly in the land of Canaan and establish them there, a holy, healthy, happy people. And make them the 27% of the world's population. And loved by all people and admired by all people. But those to whom it was first preached went not in because of what? Paul tells us, unbelief. Their hearts were filled with murmuring. Murmuring is you just grind over in your brain all these complaints, this dead-end talk, rebellion and hatred could not fill his covenant with them. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. Now, Ellen White was sent to us as a prophet in what, 1860? When did she first have her first vision? 18, early in, it was 1860s, I think it was. Oh, no, 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 no. No, it was, yeah, it was, I can't remember exactly when her first vision, I can't remember. But a long time ago. Yeah, she was a, Six, 16 or 17, I can't remember. Okay, we're not going to answer that one, I guess. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is unbelief, worldliness, unconsecration, strife against the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God the consequences of their own course of action. In other words, she said, I know that if the people of God had preserved a living connection with him, 
a living connection, not cowering at the foot of the mountain, afraid of God, but clinging to him, realizing that Moses was up there and he was actually having such a great time, his face just shone like a light. And if they had obeyed the word, we would already today be in the land of Canaan. When did she say that? What year? 1903. 1903. Researcher Leroy Edwin Froome has located 50 statements like that that she has made. We would have been in kingdom by now. Well, when the Bible says God's promises, no, nor hasty, no, Ellen White says, no, no, haste nor delay. That's the Ellen White statement. How does that fit into here? We could have been there, but we're not. It's because of the same problem. Didn't have a living connection with God. Under the mountain, thunder, shaking, lightning, gloomy clouds, the people didn't like that God. Although Moses was there, a wall was erected to keep them from being killed. They thought God was terrible. They had nothing in common. And that's the reason why those commandments are written the way they are. How bad do people have to be for God to tell them, don't commit adultery, don't kill? How bad do they have to be? You think that's what God wanted to tell them? That just is an indication of how terrible they were. It is terrible to fall in the hands of mighty God. Moses at the burning bush was told to confront Pharaoh. God will ask us to do things. He asked Paul to do things as well. Difficult things to do. So following God is not easy. It is a terrifying experience. But Paul learned that it's better to be with Christ than not. He determined to not to know anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation. That's what the Jews did at the foot of Mount Sinai. They said, we can't argue with this God. We just have to cave in and keep these laws. There was no love, no devotion. It was all superficial, all external. And Ellen White says, someone who tends to do that from a sense of obligation, merely because he is required to do so, will never enter the joy of obedience. He cannot or does not obey. Instead, you have a sullen submission to the will of the Father develop itself into the character of a rebel. And that's what they have been all through those years. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully. And in the love of God, it is mere mechanical performance. And if he dared, such a one would disobey. Can you think of anybody that really is famous for that? Lucifer. Without knowing it, Adventists would become enemies of God while thinking themselves to be the most ardent defenders. When did she say that? Oh, she didn't say that. I said that. <laughs> when, did, uh, when did that happen? It happened in Minneapolis. Most of the Adventists ended up on the wrong side against God in Minneapolis. Almost all the ministers. They denied the Holy Spirit access to them. The enemy prevented them from obtaining the efficiency that might have been theirs, carrying the truth to the world, and having another Pentecost. 
that glory was passed away. We are 120 years since then. Are we any closer than they to the promised land? Or are we like they, cowering in fear around the base with a God we don't know? Are we ready to get up on that mountain with Moses? Adventists at the early years were umbilically connected to the law. The law became the reason for their existence. The law cannot, must lead us to Christ, and it didn't do it for them. When the question came about what law was nailed to the cross in 1844, or 1888, Adventists became very uncomfortable. How could anything holy, just, and good, like the law, ever come to an end? Perhaps they reasoned, well, it could be the ceremonial law, because the services there pointed to something that Christ fulfilled, and they ended at the cross. But not the moral law. The moral law could not be nailed to the cross. It represents the character of God. Do you agree with that? Yes. Jones and Wagner believe that both the moral and the ceremonial law were nailed to the cross. Is that heresy? Yes. No, it's not. Yes. Jesus provides a way of salvation outside of the law. We're saved by grace, not the law. Doesn't mean that the law is done away with, but the law cannot save. That's why it's nailed to the cross. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're, we're, in other words, there's, it's a way we approach the law. Does the law save us? No. It's grace that saves us. And what... And this brought a tremendous pain because they thought that there's what's the use of the law if it's nailed to the cross. Uh, the delegates' reaction was similar to the Jews with Christ. They wanted to stone Jones and Wagner. Here's what Ellen White asked, or wrote. She says, I am asked concerning the law in Galatians, the one that was nailed to the cross. What law is the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ? Both the ceremonial and the Moral Code of Ten Commandments. In 1896, while she was in Australia, she wrote to Uriah Smith the clearest explanation of God's use of law that had ever been written. I want you to listen to this. She wrote this to Uriah Smith. He didn't tell anybody about this letter, and for 56 years nobody knew about it. It was in his file. And this is what she said. The law of the Ten Commandments is not to be looked upon as much from the prohibitory side as from the mercy side. Have you read the Ten Commandments that way? Do you understand them that way? Do you see them that way? It's, they didn't see it that way in 1888. Its prohibitions are the sure guarantee of happiness and obedience. As received in Christ, it works in us the purity of character that will bring, us to, bring joy to us throughout eternal ages. To the obedient is the wall of protection we behold in it the goodness of God, and by revealing to men the innumerable, immutable, I have a hard time talking, principles of righteousness seeks to shield them from the evils that results from transgression. You know, these laws that were written to a people that were so bad that God had to say what he did to them. So crude, those laws. You know, they were for those people all time, too. But do you have a, are you tempted to kill people? 
So Jesus comes along how many years later, 1,500 years later, and he says, if you hate somebody in your heart, it's like killing. Who gets the harder law? One that Jesus gave. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. And that's what the idea that was created by Adventist preachers in 1888 did. It gave gave people that idea. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring a sure result. This is part of that letter. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Getting engaged with sin is dangerous business. The law is an expression of God's idea. When we receive it in Christ, it becomes our idea, passed through by faith, written on our souls. It lifts us above the power of natural desires and tendencies, above temptations that lead to sin. We've all experienced this. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them or cause them to stumble. She says, as a people, we have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Geboa. It is the province of the law to condemn, but there is no power to pardon or to redeem. My friend, what do you think the world needs more of? They need to know the law, but they also need pardon and redemption. It is ordained to life, and those who walk in harmony with its precepts will receive reward of obedience, but it brings bondage and death to those who remain under its condemnation. We must preach Christ in the law. For years now, I've been trying to figure out how to do that. There will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. We must not trust in our own merit, but in the merits of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh boy, I'm going to move this along here because I think I've got outdone here. Let me, let me make this quote here clear. Adventists aren't the only church with problems about the law. The evangelicals who deplore Adventist legalism are much more legalistic than we. How? Grace for them is a, uh, a thing to take away their legal problems. That's legalism. Preoccupation with one's legal standing. That's legalism. And the evangelicals are very much involved with that. And so they figure out a way that they can be out of legal jeopardy. And that's it. The relationship with God is not important. It is just getting free of jeopardy. The charismatics and the Catholics are in the same trouble, but a little different way. They believe that the power of the blood is magical. (laughs) It's God, not blood, that's magical. It's the relationship with him that has healing power. He wants to be our friend. It's his blood he shed, and, uh, and it's him that changes us from the inside out. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of righteousness. Like the psalmist said, Thy law is within my heart. I delight to do thy will. Well, Abraham was changed because he was a close friend with God. 
Moses met with God face to face. And that changed them. Jesus said, I call you not servants, for a servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall say, show you plainly of the Father. That's what it is all about. Well, my friends, um, sad story happened to the Jews. Terrible sad story. They would not have the relationship. And that's why the story went so bad. Well, Adventists have a different story. In 1888, we didn't. And there was a tremendous amount of work in our denomination that started with those camp meeting series that Ellen White went out with Jones and Wagner on for a number of years after 1888. It started with Christ Our Righteousness by the General Conference President at the turn of the century in 1902. And then moving down to our day with uh, your dear friend, um, uh, oh, Venden, thank you. Morris Venden, that tried to bring these truths back into our church. It's hard to get those truths there. It's so much easier to find ourselves at the base of a mountain in terrible fear of a God we do not know at all. We can't have our lives changed that way. We've got to let Jesus come into our heart, and as he comes in, he brings his own righteousness, and suddenly... His thoughts become our thoughts. His ways become our ways. We don't even know how it happens. But it's because we've allowed him come in. And it's not the law that has changed us. It's Jesus that has changed us. And we can't even understand why. I saw my dad. This was the most amazing experience of my life, and I was telling Herb Montgomery about it on our way over. Uh, Herb Montgomery's in Willits this today at our church holding meetings there. And I told him about this raging father of mine and how I had heard he was going to be baptized. And when after the baptism, we went home, and I, as a preacher, I thought to myself, this man cannot be changed. I had seen him rage so often. God could not do this. Did I tell you about the pogo stick? You know what a pogo stick is? You get on it and jump up and down. You had one? My sister did. She was jumping on her pogo stick in our front yard at our house in Barton in Fresno. Feet went off of the stirrups. Pogo stick went right through here. Opened up a spot underneath her jaw here. Blood started pouring out. Just started pouring out. Mom is a nurse. Mom came out and tried to stop the bleeding, wanted to get Dad to call the doctor, but Dad was a hold of that pogo stick, beating it to death. <laughs> and you didn't want to be anywhere near Dad. But Dad was that way all the time, about everything. And I had seen that all the years growing up. And now he was baptized. And I went to their house after he was baptized. And I looked at him. And something came so close after the baptism, one of these little triggers that would set him off. And I, you know those triggers. You know where they're at. They show you what's there. 
And all of a sudden, I saw the rage start. And you can count 1,001, 1,002, and then it stops. For the first time in my life, I saw Jesus at work inside my dad's heart. And for the next 10 or 12 years that we had dad, I think I made it a little longer than that, more and more beautiful changes as this hard, raging man softened into a beautiful Christian man. When he softened and he changed, he gave me the freedom to change as well. Gave me freedom to get beyond those things that he had built up with inside me. And it's because he let Jesus come in. Now my dad could keep the law and want to keep the law because he fell in love with Jesus and he could relax in Jesus' presence. Adventists need to have this kind of a message or we're going to be here and suffer the kind of pain and agony the Jews have gone through all of their history because they can't seem to get to do that. Now there are Jews for Jesus now and quite a growing number of them. Praise the Lord for that. But isn't it something to see 27% of the population through Ishmael. What was it? 2% through, through uh, Isaac, Jacob. Just 2%. It's amazing. Father in heaven, it's kind of a sobering story, those promises that you gave to Abraham, your friend. And what you so very much wanted to see happen and tried repeatedly over and over to bring about all down through the years and to see the long view of history pointing back, realizing how tragic this was for the Jewish people. Let it not be so for us today. May we learn from those mistakes and listen to what Paul said the hardness of our hearts, the stubbornness, the lack of faith, the inability to listen. Help us every day to open up our hearts to you and let you become our friend and we become your friend and become changed like my dad was. What an amazing change. And then maybe the world will see us differently and they won't hate us or be so confused and suspicious about us as they have been about the Jews. May they see a softness and a Christ-likeness in us. May it be that we can really go home soon. You've already told them that you took away all the obstacles and said, go in, take the land. And I think that promise applies to us as well. May it happen. We're about ready to start an evangelistic campaign, Lord. We're asking you to use us in any way to come into our hearts, to prepare us for that and to help us to somehow join you in this great effort of reaching out to our town and loving people and being gracious, being friendly, and show them what it's like to be a friend of God. Guide us in that task. Be here with us. Make it so. Remove all those barriers. May your dreams come true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.